Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we're going to talk about the Sahel. We're going to look at European interests in the region, what might change after France announced a significant shift in its policy towards the region and what it all means for the future of Europe's engagement with Africa. I am pleased to welcome an all-star cast. First up, we have Emanuela Del Rey, who is the former Italian Deputy Foreign Minister and the new EU Special Representative for the Sahel region. Second up, we have Sylvie Kaufmann, who is Editorial Director and Leader Writer and Columnist at Le Monde, as well as a board member and council member of ECFR. And finally, we have back to podcasts, Andrew Lepovich, who's a policy fellow at ECFR working on North Africa and the Sahel. Thank you all very much for joining. Emanuela, why don't we start with you? Can you give us a sense of what you think the EU's main stakes are in the, the Sahel region and what some of the big challenges to those interests are at the moment? Thank you very much, Mark. I would say that um, we can guess the importance of the Sahel region just looking at the map, because the Sahel region, uh, which I define as the real southern frontier of Europe, is uh, obviously geographically fundamental because it is the center of all traffics in Africa and of all the uh, events and uh, movements of people and things of and goods that uh, go towards the north, towards our countries, crossing the Mediterranean, involving, of course, Maghreb, Libya, then Italy and up to the north to, towards the rest of uh, the European Union. Obviously, when I talk about traffic movements, I mean, uh, of course, uh, migration because because countries of the Sahel are not only uh, countries of destination, but they're also countries of transit. They deal with a big number of refugees because there are uh, in the region a number of emergency uh, emergencies related to climate uh, disasters and, uh, of course, other uh, issues such as poverty, uh, famine and other. And they are also countries of uh, transit because, of course, uh, uh, they have to welcome and then, <laughs> if possible, uh, take care of the refugees and the economic migrants and also IDPs, but they, 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 those people also try to cross the Sahel to reach our countries. And this also uh, creates uh, a number of issues, side issues, because sometimes they end up in Libya. In Libya, they might end in detention camps. In some cases, they try to cross the Mediterranean and the risks for them are immense, such as death in the desert or in the sea. And of course, this is a very big concern for the European Union. At the same time, we have a number of other issues, security, because you know that the region is afflicted by a number of security issues, not, not to mention, of course, uh, general uh, problems related to terrorism in various forms, but also, uh, of course, other problems related to the fact that there is a lack of governance, difficulty for the youth to develop, and with great difficulties has been introduced used in the mentality of all of us is becoming a reality partnership in the sense that we're all partners in the same uh, road for the same goal. Thank you very much for that, Emanuela. Um, so Sylvie, until very recently, the only people that could find the Sahel on the map and were really able to talk about it in lots of these meetings were, were French. But as a result of lots of French engagement in the region, many countries from 
Estonia to um, uh, to Germany to the UK have found themselves militarily engaged in a part of the world which uh, was quite far from their consciousness. And now France seems to be upping sticks and, and, and changing its plans in a dramatic way. Can you tell us a bit about, first of all, why France has been particularly interested in the Sahel compared to other countries, but also how French interests maybe differ from some of the wider European interests that Emmanuela has just talked us through? Uh, hello. Uh, it's it's a, it's a big question, of course, as almost as big as this region of Africa. Of course, there are historical links and colonial links, but this is already a long time ago. Uh, there is a huge connection of people also. You know, there's a big, very big population of uh, Mali or Malian origin living in France. A, a big part of the immigrant population is, is from that part of Africa. But why the French is are engaged militarily in the Sahel is an, another story. It is because in 2013, the government of Mali appealed to France to help because the jihadi terrorists were threatening to overcome the territory of Mali, which is huge. I mean, they were in the north. They had overcome the north of Mali already, Tombouctou and all that that part. And they were threatening Bamako, the capital. So the French army intervened there. And there's some kind of misunderstanding there, I think, between the Europeans and the French on this uh, on this issue, which is that for a long time, this milit- French military intervention was seen by most European partners of France as a kind of, you know, it's in your backyard post-colonial operation. And the French themselves didn't see it that way because... If you remember, that was 2013, but 2015, we had huge terrorist attacks in France, you know, with a a lot, a lot of casualties. And so this fight against terrorism was seen by the French people, not as a French cause, but as a, you know, European and and even, you know, world cause. So for, for several years, I think there was this kind of confusion and misunderstanding that the French thought the Europeans should be there with the French because the French were, in a way, fighting there for Europe, not only for France. And the other Europeans were, oh, you know, this is uh, another French adventure in Africa. And I think now, so Macron, Emmanuel Macron inherited this office, inherited this situation because it was... Um, presidency of François Hollande, who decided to intervene there. And Macron took this situation. I mean, he didn't, you know, he, he agreed with the goal of, of, uh, of uh, the French uh, operation there. But Macron has another grand design for Africa. He wanted, because he's uh, young and he was born after the independence of French colonies in Africa, he wanted to change the relationship of France with Africa. He wanted to go beyond this post-colonial relationship. He wanted a reset. And as soon as 2017, he went to Ouagadougou and made what he presents as a major speech to uh, uh, present his vision of, uh, uh, of this new relationship with Africa. And he proceeded to to, to do a lot of new things, uh, working on the history, on, our, on the common history, on 
taking several economic steps, and I'm not going to go into details because we're maybe going far from our original subject. But the, the fact is that the military operation in Sahel, in a way, contradicted his this grand design because how do you reset a, a relationship with Africa if you're still <laughs> present militarily in 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 that area in in, in part of it? So uh, he this is I think one of the reasons why he really tried very hard to internationalize or to Europeanize this intervention. I mean, I say internationalize because there's an African component to it. Of course, he, you know, there's the G5 Sahel, which is France and the, the, the governments of the, uh, the Af- of the African countries of that region. And then he tried to draw European, as you said, partners into the military operation in, in the Takuba force, which is a force of special forces, which is going to take over now from the original Operation Barkhane. And there's also the EUTM, the European Union mission, which is training local military. So, Andrew, you've been going back and forth to the region for a long time and have been writing about it for ECFR throughout this period. Do you want to give people a sense of the scale of, of, of European engagement in the region and, and how that has been sort of uh, organized over the last period of, of time? Sure. Well, I think the, the first thing to remember, and, and this is something that the EU points out very often, actually, and, and EU officials point out often, that the EU, uh, going back to 2011, had an integrated Sahel strategy uh, that was meant to combine security and development in particular. And so the EU has been focused on this for some time, but there's a, a quite significant scale of involvement in the region, taking into account, first of all, some of the programs that uh, that should be highlighted, the CSDP missions, uh, the UCAP, so civilian advisory. Um, civilian capacity assistance missions in Niger and Mali, the EU training mission in Mali, which is going to be expanded to Burkina Faso and Niger to encompass some of the other European training programs that exist, such as a small German special forces training operation in Niger. But then you also have things like the Sahel Alliance, which encompass a variety of development and other programs in the region. I think the, the count right now is up to more than 800 programs through 2022 to the scale of almost 12 billion euro. And then uh, again, for the EU more broadly, but also for European member states, the Sahel has emerged over the years as um, what officials have sometimes described as a laboratory for integrated planning, integrated operations, and particularly stabilization. And so this is, I think, a big thrust of of European policy on top of the issues uh, that SMV and Emanuela described, the sort of more concrete interests about fighting terrorism, about migration in particular. And I think we can probably talk later about whether or not that's actually calibrated to um, to the level of threat or to the level of, of issues in the region, particularly on migration, where I've written before and others have written about the ways in which EU policies have actually inhibited trade in the region have potentially led to greater insecurity in some areas. But there is a fairly significant scale of of interest and involvement, both on the institutional level and then on the EU member state level for France, for Germany, uh, for Spain, for Italy, uh, and also for for other countries. And this is a longstanding interest that is going to remain uh, an interesting for some time. But we basically, as you have all said, 
been involved for a long time now. It's nine years since the this original call came for for help with the coup in uh, in uh, in 2012. And by all accounts, the situation now is worse than it's ever been before. Even fact, even worse than it was nine years ago. What does that tell us? What do these kind of recent developments, including the ups, upsurge in violence and fact that just two weeks ago UN soldiers including from the German Bundeswehr were was were severely injured in an attack how have have these kind of new dynamics changed the situation and what what does it mean for for uh, our perception of how successful these uh, hundreds of different projects that you've been talking about have been well so I think part of the impetus for these projects to begin with uh, again especially the Sahel alliance and then later the coalition for the Sahel has been to try to to rationalize and to bring these programs together to prevent the kind of reproduction of effort that was happening to try to bring more coherence to these policies but this has been a very long process I mean the Sahel alliance was founded in 2017 and it's been a process even with just the Sahel alliance to bring about a shared understanding of some of these issues among uh, contributing partners and that's still underway and that's just the Sahel alliance uh, let alone some of these other programs um but I think and and a number of others who study these issues fairly closely think that one of the challenges has been this very gradual and probably too too gradual uh, shift in how international institutions, how the EU, and also how the French government understand some of these issues of stabilization and political reform. And, and one of the points that, that I've made fairly often is that the international approaches remain very technical in a lot of ways, focused on capacity building, focused on traditional development work, focused on infrastructure, despite this language of, of integrated operations and integrated understandings. And that on governance issues in particular and political reform, the international community remains, I think, fairly uh, behind the ball, as we might say, and continues to be unsure of how to deal with issues of political reform. Now, I mean, you're talking about political reform, but we've just seen a coup within a coup in, in Mali. <laughs> Can you maybe, <laughs> yeah. you or Emanuela, maybe talk a bit about what's actually going on, um, feel like sort of classic political reform? <laughs> well, actually, I was in Mali just after the coup when I was a deputy minister at the first coup. Now I'm going back at the end of the month after the second coup. I don't think that this is the, the main problem, honestly, although, of course, uh, it's uh, something that um, appears as appalling to all of us, of course, because, uh, you know, we would like to have stability. We would like to uh, see, you know, harmony in, uh, and especially in Mali, which is a very important uh, country, I would say a key country, but Particular. Nevertheless, I want to tell you that uh, we have to continue on our road and be coherent with our principles. Otherwise, you know, if we give a message of uh, uh, not understanding the development of different uh, dynamics within the societies, we are not cut out of completely uh, of the process. So I would say that, uh, of course, we have to aim at governance, which is the key word for everything. Unless we make sure that governance becomes the element that catalyzes all other uh, projects and all other ideas we have around the uh, stabilization, development and peace and prosperity for, for the region, unless we don't use this 
keyword and we don't work on this, of course, we will fail. Uh, one thing I want to comment uh, on the fact that this, uh, uh, this coup d'etat uh, derived from, uh, of course, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the lack of responses from the elite to the demands of the population, the needs, the actual needs of the population, and the fact that the, their needs are also uh, making them so vulnerable that they become prey of uh, terrorist groups and they feed terrorist groups. So it's a vicious circle that runs around the same concept, once again, governance. I honestly think that when uh, Andrew was talking uh, earlier on about projects and ideas, uh, I think the real problem has been so far sustainability in the sense that a lot of efforts have been made and probably the the lack of stability is also a product of our failure in a sense uh, until now, but there is an opportunity for the future, of course, to create stability, uh, sustainability in our projects to make sure that we would hand over the, our um, knowledge and uh, cooperation to the local populations and local communities in according to the principle of ownership that is actually one of the main principles on which all our countries, European countries, have been uh, basing the, our, our projects until now. The other very important thing, in order, uh, once again, to obtain a proper stability in a system of governance that would reflect our concept of citizenship and state of law is definitely uh, to make sure that when we talk about security, we also talk about development. And when we talk about development, we also talk about security, making uh, the nexus, the the famous nexus between security and development become a reality, which has not been possible until now. And it is one of the reasons why the narrative has been always so negative. Unless we make clear also to the public opinion and we justify and we make it make people understand that the reason why we have a system of security, we deploy people on the ground, we um, make sure that we intervene in uh, the security aspects, but at the same time, we are also working thoroughly for development with sustainable projects in a general framework um, of, of governance. Unless we do so, obviously it would be very difficult to, to make people believe, not only in Sahel, but also in Europe, and consider that in Europe there are also fantastic diasporas which are waiting for us to demonstrate that we are able to uh, deliver something in cooperation, in partnership with the, the countries of Sahel. And they are also waiting to have a voice and to become partners in this process, the, the diasporas, and to become bridges between country of origin and country of destination, because they probably know how to survive their country of origin and also so survive, as some of my uh, friends, members of the diaspora say, survive migration, which is certainly something that uh, can teach us a lot and can also, uh, they can become messengers and ambassadors of a different concept of citizenship. But unless we do all this together, we have an holistic approach, we understand that each one of these elements is absolutely necessary to create this, uh, this, this very integrated strategy. I don't think we are going very far. And the instability in Mali, it's a result, uh, as you know, because it was uh, a very unusual coup d'etat. Luckily enough, there were no deaths, but 
there was, of course, uh, an upsurge, and there was also, of course, uh, um, you know, a general situation of, of, of a situation of instability. Nevertheless, this is the result of uh, uh, you know a number of failures in a number of fields. So we have to take it, this into account, and anyway, have faith in the population because I think that uh, you know we are all going to meet the new the new uh, elite, the new leadership. We are going to make sure that we the dialogue continues and this is something that we have to do always because unless we continue the dialogue of course we lose an opportunity so sylvie we heard quite a lot there about the idea of being joined up and uh, manuela was talking about the, the links between the security and the civilian side but the other kind of important angle of being joined up is is the european angle and you talked a bit before about how Emmanuel Macron has this very different vision for French engagement with Africa, and that might be one of the big drivers behind the desire to, to downsize French engagement in the region. There's been quite a lot of criticism of the way that these decisions were made as well. It seemed quite sort of... Well, French, was, you mean? <laughs> there are parallels between the way that the US um, was pulling out of different theatres under Donald Trump and... and <laughs> yeah, well... But um, yeah. talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I was not in the discussion, so uh, I don't know exactly how they were taken, but you can, I suppose you can guess that France being in the lead on that operation, it also decided that it had to take the lead, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, to lead the decision. But uh, if you don't mind, I would like also to go back to a point that Emmanuel um, Del Rey made about the role of the diasporas, and that in, that really is important for the European role. I think we have to look at Africa as it is at the moment. I mean, of course, it's complex because it's 54, 55 countries. I always forget, but uh, you know, it, it's Africa is, is is a complex world, but it is a world where Europe has to Europe has to be linked. And if you look at what's going on at the moment, what what China is doing, what Russia is doing, what Turkey is doing, and we have these diasporas in Europe. And it just, you know, doesn't make sense that we are not being more coherent, more active, more organized, more purposeful in, in Africa. And of course, the, the crisis, the COVID-19 crisis kind of interrupted this new strategy that the EU had for Africa. And I mean, Brussels, the commission had scheduled um, a summit between the European Union and the African Union, which was never held because of, of COVID. But in the meantime, Xi Jinping had his own summit with African leaders. So we really have to pay attention to Africa and to be more involved beyond our urgent uh, counter-terrorism work and, and our military engagement. But this is really, I think, a huge issue for Europeans that we should be more aware of. But do you think that the way that France is trying to downscale its its military engagement will encourage other Europeans to, to come in and to be more involved? Or do you think it'll be demotivating for them? Well, you have to ask the other Europeans. I think, of course, uh, it depends how it is done and, and, and organized. It is, you know, France ha also has a problem with these African leaders and all these governance issues that Emanuela Delray described, that France being in the lead is then being targeted as responsible for every single problem. And there's this 
ambivalence of African leaders that because of a backlash in their public opinion, publicly they distance themselves from, from the French operations, but privately then when they have security issues, they go to see the French and say, please, please come. So <laughs> I think Macron has been quite clear about this. He thinks this is an unhealthy situation. And he, I think this is also why he wants the Europeans to be more involved collectively. Whether he will succeed or not, is, I, I don't have a clue. <laughs> So, Emanuela, how, how do you see the future of European involvement in the region? Do you think that, that there will be a positive reception to, to France's increased push for the task force Tabuka to, to take on a more direct counterterrorism mission, um, to have more in, engagement from other Europeans in it? Well, actually, I want to make a comment on the, the recent uh, rearrangement in Barkhane, if an Italian can make a comment on a French <laughs> issue. <laughs> no, I want to say that I actually have been interviewed many times on this topic, and I've always said I, th- I find it intelligent that France uh, understands that uh, you have to give in contemporary answers to contemporary uh, problems in the sense that, uh, you know, if you have a format, it doesn't mean that the format must be uh, forever. You have to adjust to the changing situation. And because uh, nowadays there is also awareness on the part of France, but also on the part of uh, the countries of Sahel, that uh, it is time to uh, put in practice the, the huge amount of training they have received in uh, the security forces. I think this is about time that you know the situation has, uh, is reviewed and adjusted to uh, the future challenges and opportunities as well. As regards uh, the, the, the new force to Cuba and uh, other approaches, I think that the Europeans and the French French as well uh, are very aware of the fact that unless we do it together and we uh, propose, uh, uh, let's say, a sort of unity in the approach, I think, uh, you know, we are not credible. And credibility is a huge problem for the European Union nowadays, as it is uh, uh, not only in the Sahel, but also in other areas, because we need to uh, be sure that we are credible in uh, our approach. We are not just being present for the sake of being present and opposing the, um, the terrorists, but because we want to build something and we have to be the best option still uh, for for uh, for the Sahelian to choose for the future. It's not an easy task. I was in favor of Taguba when I was a de- the deputy minister. I'm in favor of Taguba now because it offers the opportunity to work in, uh, in a team with uh, different, uh, of course, responsibilities and different uh, specialties, so to speak. But it offers an opportunity to show that we are united in this new course that implies mutual responsibility and also, of course, uh, a partnership. Great. Thank you. So, Andrew, why don't we come to you with the, for the last word on, on this? How do you see the, the future of European engagement going forward? And what's your sense from some of the other European governments that you've been speaking to, like the Germans, about how excited they are about stepping up? Not not very excited, I think, is the easy way to put that. Uh, no, and there's uh, there's actually been quite a lot of inconsistency on on multiple sides of this engagement on the French side in terms of talking about sharing responsibility, but also not really wanting to give up leadership 
of these initiatives and wanting to maintain a, a fairly significant degree of political influence and military influence certainly over. But Andrew, um, sorry, do you see a military operation without leadership does that exist? No, no, I don't. And this is where some of the inconsistency comes in. Where I think that on the one hand, France exercises a very, uh, a very strong leadership role, but if no one else is willing to to take up more of the burden, then of course it's it's natural to an extent that this would fall to France. And this is where some of the inconsistency, I think, on the EU side comes in, particularly from Germany, where uh, this is obviously an ongoing debate in German foreign policy that did not begin with the Sahel. But there's a very real question about the use of force and how German policymakers are actually willing to look at foreign policy engagement, particularly in the Sahel, where for a lot of the talk about stabilization and civilian-led approaches, that Germany has championed, but then has not made a concurrent push to actually adequately fund these initiatives and staff them. And so this is where also there's a bit of tension, I think, with French officials, where they've said, okay, we have listened, we have understood that we can't have a purely military approach, now let others lead on the civilian side, and then that effort also hasn't hasn't come so far. And so, again, I, I'm not trying to place blame only on the French for this or only on the Germans on the others. I also think um, certainly there's going to be a significant degree of European engagement for years to come. I don't think that's going to change, but I do think that where Europe can benefit would be from trying to actually develop their own strategies. And this is for European member states as well as uh, obviously the EU has a strategy in place, um, but continuing to, to work and discuss and debate that strategy is very, very important. I think particularly when talking about these governance issues that we've brought up, there's still, there, there's a significant perspective that's lacking on the EU side. And particularly when we're talking about mutual accountability, this is a very good development. I think it's very important to be talking about these issues, but it actually has to be seen in practice. Um, so one example, for instance, is when the, the EU announced a suspension uh, or announced that they were canceling uh, I think about 100 million euro of assistance of budgetary assistance to the Malian government because certain baseline standards weren't met, particularly for reform within Mali security services. But then that aid was reallocated elsewhere in Mali. So it's not quite setting the kind of conditionality that I think is important and the kind of conditionality that we talk about much more um, in Europe and also in the United States. So the engagement is going to remain, but I do think that we can still do much more to actually try to create this, this policy coherence and to focus on the kind of political issues that now we talk about much more than even a couple of years ago, but it's important to actually put that into practice in the region and to actually really show a commitment to the governance issues that, that many Sahelians actually need and, and demand and ask for. And that is really the next stage. And I, I still don't think we're really there despite the growing attention to those issues and the growing need to, to mention them, to talk about them. But we need to really see that in practice still. Well, that seems to be a consistent theme throughout what all three of you have said, and we'll definitely come back and talk again about Sahel in the future. It's been a really interesting discussion, but there's one more thing we have to do on this podcast before we, we go, which is our, our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Sylvie? So I'm... Um, 
I'm afraid it's in French, but since we've been talking in English about Africa, maybe I can uh, give you it because it's it's, it's a really an excellent book uh, and it also concerns the conversation we just had. It's called La Guerre de 20 Ans, uh, the 20 Year War. Jihad, jihadism et contre-terrorisme au 21e siècle, jihadism and counter-terrorism in the 21st century by uh, two of uh, excellent guys, Mark Ecker and Elie Tenenbaum, who are historians and, and experts in political science. And it is really the history of the war on terror since September 11 to today. So it goes, of course, to the Middle East, but it goes to Southeast Asia. And of course, it also goes to the Sahel. And it explains why we haven't yet won that war and why, as Andrew said, we're going to be in the Sahel for still quite a long time, unfortunately. Great. What's on your bookshelf, Andrew? You won't be surprised to find out that my bookshelf is pretty Sahel-focused right now. The the first is a, a really excellent book by Alex Thurston, who's a, a scholar uh, of the region called Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel. Uh, it's a really fantastic book that goes from uh, the Maghreb to the Sahel and looks at many of these issues, including issues of, of the kind of political projects that jihadist groups put forward. And then also speaking and thinking about governance in the region, um, another book in French, but by a Malian author, Etre étudiant au Mali by an author named Bokar Sangari, who is a, it's a really fantastic book uh, that describes so many of the challenges, particularly in the educational sector, but also looks back at, at some of the political failings in contemporary Mali and the challenges that, that Malians face today in these key sectors like education, just the challenges of trying to get an education in Mali. Um, it's, a, it's a really fantastic book that also sheds a bit of a different light on some of these issues that we talk about so much. Thank you very much. And last word to you, Emanuela Del Rey, what, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, actually, there is one book that um, I keep on my bedside table all the time, every single day, which is The Letters to Lucilius by Seneca, of course. And uh, that's, it's, uh, that's an indication on the universe of uh, human uh, intellect and also emotions. Apart from that, I also keep, uh, and I'm reading now, uh, a book on um, West Africa, which it, it's very interesting because it enhances an aspect which I find particularly interesting because it uh, talks about the influence of uh, anthropology and sociology in the development of uh, Africa, and in particular in West Africa. I'm particularly fascinated by this um, neo-Marxism taking place in uh, the in many regions of Africa. And I think it's quite interesting for us Europeans because we have gone through that phase, but we see it develop. And one book in particular, in particular, it's a book by Gregory Mann called From Impasse to NGOs in the West African Sahel. And being myself an anthropologist, uh, my, it was my first degree. I, I appreciate that particularly. I'm also reading a novel because I read a lots of novels. Uh, of course, I would suggest Chimamanda Ngozi Adikie, Half of a Yellow Sun, because uh, it also tells you a lot. Consider that Niger and Nigeria, they don't have a border. And this book is written, has been written by a, a Nigerian writer, a, very interesting woman and it depicts a moment in the development of Nigeria which is very strongly uh, important for also the 
uh, Niger, consider that Hausa is a language spoken, you know, on this, the, the two sides of the two countries. And of course, the last uh, book that I'm reading at the moment, I'm finishing it these very days, is a book on uh, on uh, by written by a famous imam in Italy, Yahya Pallavicini, who is uh, um, who has written a book on uh, contemplating Allah. And I think it's a beautiful book because considering that in Mali, uh, you know, you have this Sufism that was one of the distinctive elements of their tolerance and uh, inclusiveness. And I think it could be rediscovered somehow. Uh, contemplating Allah teaches me a lot on some of the major mas- masters of uh, Islam, which are uh, which have based their, their teachings on this kind of approach, more mystical and more uh, open to society. Thank you. Thank you very much for this real treasure trove of books, which I'm sure people will take with them down to the beach or wherever it is that they managed to get away uh, during this plague troubled summer. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download it. it we're available everywhere from Apple Podcasts to Spotify. And if you have the time or the inclination, we would be very grateful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to get us from. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Emanuela Del Rey, Sylvie Kaufman, Andrew Lebovich, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher on this episode is Catherine Barron and our editor this week is Chris Eichberger.